Gillespie here. Did you know that the show, As Lutheran As It Gets, is entirely supported by you, our listeners? Uh, we'd like you to support us, and actually the best way would be to sign up for a monthly reoccurring donation. You can do that at higherthings.org slash support. Uh, and be sure to mention in the memo that this is in support of As Lutheran As It Gets. Also, I wanted to encourage you, as Pastor Riley will at the end, to go to iTunes and rate us. But even more importantly, leave us a review. Leave us a review. We've had some reviews recently. JJM54321 says, great podcast. Bondage of the Will and Galatians episodes are awesome. Yes, we enjoy them quite a bit. And also Tim uh, says, drop deep stuff. Gillespie and Riley are interesting uh, hosts talking about some of the deeper things of theology. Uh, with a guaranteed squirrel track thrown in. <laughs> I look forward to the podcast every week. No, thank you very much, Tim. That's right. So again, support us and go leave a review on iTunes and let other people know that we are doing this great work for you. All right, now to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is As Lutheran As It Gets as always, we are your hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Chillin' and willin', maxin' and relaxin'. And I am Pastor in Good Standing, Donovan Riley. For now. <laughs> For now. Always. It's a day-to-day thing with me. Uh, this is episode 51 on Luther's Galatians Lectures, chapter 5, verse 4. Paul writes, You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. So Luther comments, Paul explains here and further demonstrates that he is not just talking about the law or simply about circumcision. He is talking about the confidence and opinion that people have, that they will be justified through the law. It's as if he had said, I do not entirely condemn the law nor circumcision, for it is, the law, for it is lawful for me to drink, eat, and keep company with the Jews according to the law. It is lawful for me to circumcise Timothy. However, what I condemn is your attempt to justify yourself through the law, as if Christ had not yet come. And even now that he has come, you still claim that unaided he alone is unable to justify. That is what I condemn, for it is nothing but to cut yourselves off from Christ. Thus he says, you have separated yourselves. That is, you are like the Pharaoh of old. For you have said, let Christ go free, let him go. Thus Christ is not in you. He is no longer working in you. You are no longer participants of the knowledge, the spirit, the fellowship, the favor, the liberty, the life or the works of Christ. Instead, you have completely cut yourselves off from Christ so that he no longer has anything to do with you, nor you with him. Oh, he's harsh on my mellow there. Right? He does not go gently into that sweet night. No, and Paul didn't either, right? So he's he's echoing the the severity of um, Paul's (laughs) statement here in verse 4. You know, right. That you've cut yourselves off, which is, of course, uh, right. pretty, what, illustrative? <laughs> it's a nice example. I remember at seminary, one criticism that you would hear often enough to remember it was that Luther essentially wanted to make himself over into Paul 2.0. That hmm. his his anecdote about his conversion and entering the monastery he he even uses the language of Paul when he talks about himself as a monk, right? Like Paul says, I was a Pharisee of amongst Pharisees. And Luther will say, as far as monks go, I was the best hmm. at being a monk. <laughs> well, I've got one up on you there, Paul. Right. Yeah. And I understand the criticism, but I think what's missed is it's not a it's not I'm going to emulate this saint. But rather, I think what happens is, as Luther lectures on Paul's letter to the Romans and then Galatians in 1521, he discovers a kindred spirit. 
he discovers that it's the gospel that's the thing. It's the gospel that forms Paul as an apostle and as a man. And he also then sees what Paul struggles against in Rome or Galatia with what he struggles against in relation to the papacy. Mm, okay. That it's not a personality so that is important so much as he resonates with Paul was attacked for preaching the gospel in such and such a way. I'm being attacked for preaching the gospel in such and such a way. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. And maybe uh, we can all, uh, what do you want to say, sympathize or um, it resonates with us too, because Mm -hmm. maybe not, maybe not to the dramatic kind of comparison of Luther against the papacy, Um, Mm -hmm. but, but in small ways, right? We've, we've encountered people um, who have forgotten their first love. We would say, mm-hmm. right? as Paul 100%. says, you have separated yourselves. You are like the Pharaoh of old because you have said, let Christ go free. Let him go. Thus Christ is not in you. And this is the struggle of every evangelical preacher is that the old Adam, when he hears the gospel, when he hears you are justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works of the law, you cannot be justified or made righteous by your own works in whole, in part, or even a sliver, Hmm. the old Adam screams bloody murder. Yeah. Because it is bloody murder for the old Adam. As it was for Pharaoh and his firstborn. Right. And therefore, whether it be Paul, whether it be Dr. Luther, whether it be us in our pulpits today, the theme should be the same because the gospel is the gospel. And the old Adam's reaction to the gospel is the same as it ever was. This this, uh, comparison to Pharaoh is... is I think helpful um, mm-hmm. because I mean, what was Moses asking for? Mm-hmm. Was he asking to not be a part of Egypt, um, to to fl- to be out of the world, so to speak? You know, go out. Right. No, it was to go out in the wilderness and worship their god. That was it. Right. Correct. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. what was Pharaoh denying? He was denying, you know, right worship of God. He wasn't denying them. I don't know mm-hmm. uh, anything else like livelihood or. Right. Right. Um, they were pretty well taken care of, apparently. At least that's that's what they thought later on. <laughs> Which is, a now that you bring it up, it's a very interesting juxtaposition with Nebuchadnezzar, mm. who does say, hey, you know what? You're free to worship your God now. I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah. And he doesn't say you can't worship the other gods. He simply says, Israel's God is the chief God. I've seen his works. And so you have this juxtaposition where Pharaoh believes he's God because... Pharaoh is God, mm-hmm. and therefore his refusal to let them worship any other God except the gods of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar, who is God because he is king and therefore God, does make allowance for it hmm. and says, you want to go off in the wilderness and worship your God? Go ahead. And he promotes um, Daniel and <clears throat> puts him over the country and right. makes him governor and all these things. So you, yeah, it's a very, it, it's like Joseph, Moses, and, and Daniel. Hmm. You can see this, right? Yeah. And comparing it here, you know, to what Paul's talking about, I mean, it's it's not like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, where God has a, the true God has a foothold, right, in your mm-hmm. life. And yes, there are, there is false worship, right? I mean, who, yeah. who, who of us doesn't have their idols, you know, maybe not on a, you know, a little altar in the corner of the living room. <laughs> uh, yes, or on the walls. Or on the walls. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we make out to be idols. Um, but, you know, he's, what Paul's talking about and what Luther's relaying is, no, this is where the true God has even been supplanted, right? Correct. Yeah. By, by, and by yourself, really, you become the idol. He is no longer working in you. You are no longer participants of the knowledge the spirit, the fellowship, the favor, the liberty, the life, or the works of Christ. So you don't know Christ. You don't have Christ's spirit. You're not together with Christ. He's not pleased with you. You have no freedom and therefore no life, and you don't have his works. You may know him, know of him by name, but you know nothing of right. him. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. You are in love with the idea of Christ, <laughs> but not Christ himself. Yeah, not the Christ who comes and, to save you from your sin, but the, but the Christ of right. you know of the law of a new lawgiver, moral example law. Right. Yeah, and that's as Luther draws out. This is really the cutting edge of this statement: is you have cut yourselves off from Christ. Mm-hmm. And as you and I, as pastors, know more often than not, contrary to the way that we are prepared at seminary to deal with the office, of the keys as pastors, more often than not, 
the people will excommunicate themselves. Yeah. And it's only, unfortunately, after the fact that we declare like in an official way what what they've Mm -hmm. already done to themselves. Yes. We're making publicly available this information that they have cut themselves off from Christ. Mm. And so we're not kicking you out. You left. Right. We called you back. We tried to restore you Mm -hmm. in a Matthew 18 way. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in the end, we have to say, you're not a member of the family of God. You're a stranger. You're a tax collector. You're the guy across the street, the neighbor, but we don't know you anymore. And even that is intended as a call to repentance, right? Correct. Demonstrate right. the severity you know, of the situation. Right. Even Paul saying, let the devil have him to the Corinthians is still, as he says, maybe this will be the thing that causes him to repent and drives him back into the church. Yeah. That we are not called to speak prohibitively in a penal sense, but rather prohibitively in an attempt to restore the lapsed brother or sister who already has cut themselves off. Mm. And I think that's the thing is at seminary, at least for myself, I was not taught trigger discipline when it comes to excommunication. It was simply, this is one of your jobs as the pastor. You open and you lock, you close. Mm. And you have to make the decision in the moment whether to lock the door or open the door. And then I became a pastor and and started hearing confession. And yeah, it was in my face. You just stated explicitly, not even in in Mm. metaphorical language, but you just said, I refuse to kneel at the altar with these people because of these reasons. Mm -hmm. Or I refuse um, to believe that this is Christ's body and blood, for example, with the sacrament of the altar. And you're like, yeah. so you don't want what we offer here. You've right. just said it, you know, explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and that's rough. That's rough. It is. It is, especially when you're first confronted with it. It, it you don't know what to do because it's so blatant and vulgar. <laughs> you're not prepared. And it really connects well to to the whole, you know, being a pastor mm-hmm. office thing is that I mean, we don't make real what isn't, right? We only declare Correct. what is. Right? Right. So I baptize yeah. you with water and word. Well, we're not making that baptism a baptism. We're simply right. saying what God has already, what he accomplishes um, through that action, right? Right. But it's his word. As as my doctor father said, we are to speak honestly, but not with wrath mm-hmm. and not with sentimentality. So as pastors, we are to speak the truth and strip away anger and sentimentality yeah. and simply state, this is this is what it is. Mm. And that and that goes, yeah, that goes to everything, right? I mean, the preaching, yeah, preaching absolutely. of a funeral, preaching at a birth, whatever. Yeah. Right, exactly. Back to the book. These words of Paul should be heeded with a great deal of attention. No kidding. Mm. He says that to strive after righteousness through the law is nothing else but to cut yourself off from Christ and accomplish nothing except making Christ totally worthless for you. What else could be said more forcefully against the law? What could ever withstand this lightning and thunder? That is why it is impossible for Christ and the law to coexist in the same heart, for one must give way to the other. It's the law or it's Christ. But if you believe that faith in Christ and confidence in the law can live together, then it is clear Christ is not living in your heart. Instead, It is the devil living in your heart, taking the appearance of Christ, accusing and perturbing you. The devil will always demand from you the law and its works as righteousness. But the true Christ, as I've said before, neither calls you to give an account for your sins nor urges you to trust in your good works. The true knowledge of Christ or of faith does not argue if you have done good works with an eye to righteousness or if you have done bad works by which you will be condemned. Rather, it simply concludes the following. If you have done good works, you will not be justified by them. Or if you have done bad works, you will not be condemned because of them. I do not remove from good works their praiseworthiness, nor do I recommend bad works. But with respect to justification, I say we must be sure that we have grasped on to Christ. Otherwise, if we strive to be justified through the law, we will achieve nothing except making Christ worthless to us. 
for it is Christ alone who justifies me over against my bad works and without my good works. If I have this conviction regarding Christ, I am grasping on to the true Christ. But if I think that he requires from me the law and good works to attain righteousness, then he is worthless to me. And I cut myself off entirely from him. This is Luther with, and echoing Paul with this, uh, you know, what they would call today dichotomous thinking. It's it's all or nothing, black or white. It is right. This is this is prophetic zeal. <laughs> and and in case you were really concerned towards the beginning of that paragraph, you know that now he's saying that the law is worthless in absolutely entirely in every aspect. That mm-hmm. he he does, you know. Uh, not retract, but he does say, no, the law has its its purpose, but it's in, it is not in respect to justification right. at all. Well, the simplest way to put it is Luther's own words, the law until Christ. Mm-hmm. That's not either or, but as we would argue, it's simultaneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The old Adam needs the law, the new man in Christ doesn't, <clears throat> because he has Christ's works. And to add the law, either in regards to exposing your bad works or re- mm-hmm. or leading you or revealing um, good works to you, that is then to say, why why need Christ at all, right? To, to add anything right. um, to Christ and his justification of you, the sinner, right. is actually to, uh, what, minimize or even eliminate the need for Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's his point. Well, and this is an important point too, I think, that it's not Jesus versus the old Adam. Mm. It's either Jesus or Satan. Hmm. You, this is Luther's argument in The Bondage of the Will in 1525, is that we are ridden, to use the psalmist's metaphor, we are ridden like a dumb beast, and either Christ is on our back directing us to what is good and right and salutary, or it is the devil. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that's dichotomous, all or nothing, but either a child, yes. you're either a child of God or a child of the devil, mm-hmm. right? And I think, since you brought up this this dichotomy, this is what we fight against. This is what Luther's own colleagues would fight against, which is, but I want to say, I want a choice. Mm-hmm. I want options. I want to know that I can buck off the rider and choose who will sit on my in the saddle. And you see this to this day then when we argue for Christ but this work of the law or Christ but the ceremonial law or Christ but the moral law or Christ but the law of my heart, mm-hmm. autonomous law. Even if it's just to say amen, we still want to claim that. We still have the choice to say amen, right? We can still say thank you or not say thank you. At, at least we have that. Yeah. It's righteousness in terms of, oh, what do you want to say? Progression or some kind of linear scale. Something, Between yes. black and white. And we'd like to believe right. that in terms of our righteousness before God, we're like in the gray area and we just need to be Correct. a little cleaned up. This is that the the attempt to interpret Luther through the eyes of the Enlightenment, because George Hegel, very famous Enlightenment thinker, philosopher, theologian, he is the one who said it's not thesis or antithesis. It's not black or white. There's thesis, and then there's the antithesis, and then we take the two and we form a synthesis. Mm, compromise we position, the, right? Yes, a compromise position. That's what synthesis means. It's a compromise position. And so we'll take the black, and we'll take the white, and somewhere in between those two is the truth. So we're neither good nor evil. We're somewhere in between. Right. Yeah. We have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, mm-hmm. and we have the choice to choose the good or the bad. However, theologically speaking, then the way this runs down is where I started from, I was sinful, I was unclean, there was nothing I could do to save myself. But now, over time, because I cooperate with the grace of God, or I participate with the Spirit in my regeneration and renewal, day by day, I am moving closer and closer toward God, toward the good, toward the light, toward life, truth, and all of these things. Therefore, so long as I continue in this way on this path, I will become holier. I will become, what, more righteous. I will become clearer on the law and the gospel, good and bad, mm. devil and Christ, old Adam, new man. And therefore, the gray area is like a spectrum. Yeah. And it's a nice sentiment. I mean, <laughs> like you said, uh, we're not pro- we're not to be preachers of sentiment, um, but mm. it's, a, it's one that also plays out um, in like our rite of baptism, you know. Sure. Uh, 
somewhere around the time of the Enlightenment, we also removed mm-hmm. what, what what's called the little exorcism, right? Out on clean spirit, sure. make room That's for the correct, Holy Spirit. Yes. Well, why? Because we're 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 sensitive to the consciences of the parents who don't think of their children correct. as being children of the devil, apart from uh, the Lord's work of baptism, right? Right. So right. so that sentimentality means well, we'll just kind of soft pedal the language. Well, and correct. We're, we're we're just you know we're not saved until we're we're named as uh, you know by Christ. Well. To not be saved then is to be what? <laughs> Let's Correct. be honest about it here. And uh, To be in limbo where babies go or purgatory where adults go. Well, there's some more nice sentimental ideas, right? Exactly. But to back it up even further, what men like George Hegel did during the Enlightenment is simply run with the ball that St. Augustine had laid down or mm-hmm. rolled or thrown, however you want to use the metaphor. Augustine was a Neoplatonist. And the dichotomy of light and dark, good and evil, Satan and God is right there in Augustine's writings all the way through. And then you have the late Middle Ages, which really bring Aristotle full force. So now you have this dispute in the late Middle Ages between the Aristotelian guys and the Platonic guys. And you see this between like the nominalists, for example, Mm -hmm. and other monastic groups, depending on whether they were Aristotelian or Platonic in their theology. So by the time you get to the Enlightenment, you get this mixture of Platonic ideals of two polarities, this dichotomy, and then the Aristotelian progression from lower things to higher things. Uh, Aristotle was a biologist, and this is the way he ordered creation. Then you have rocks at the bottom because, well, rocks do what rocks are supposed to do, Mm. be a rock. And then you go through plants and then animals, and then you work through your animals from, let's say, a cow to a dog or hmm. to the higher primates or dolphins. And then you get to people, and you organize them in a hierarchy, and then you have the angels and the, and the archangels and the hierarchy of heaven, and then you've got God. And this idea of progression upward, always upward, of course, and then the Baptistic idea of backsliding, this is not inherently theological or biblical this is philosophical and it's plastered over the biblical witness yeah and paul's always arguing against this that's the thing yeah it's not that he's i mean he's quite aware of not only the inclination of our hearts you know according to you know our our natural thoughts but but also the inclination of of philosopher you know the philosophers i mean we see him debating Mm -hmm. um what in the areopagus right Mm-hmm. With with the philosophers there, he's quite adept Correct. at it, apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> from from the text, and it knows it quite and well. It should, and it should be noted in the early church for a number of centuries, Christians were very comfortable assuming and adapting philosophy <laughs> into their piety hmm. and into their theology. You go read the early fathers, especially Origen, for example, yeah. deeply, deeply grounded in the philosophical tradition of his day and time. Yeah, and and it, amongst the early church fathers, you can find many a Christian who says there are pagans who are in heaven, right? Which is now also a practically what a practical opinion that people are holding to as well. Correct, right? correct. As you said, sentiment, yeah, nostalgia. Well, it's a nice idea. Yeah, I mean, they're gener- they're good people. They've done good works, so yes. surely God will um, account that to them right. somehow, right? Right. And we don't want to acknowledge that the biblical witness says there is an actual judgment. Mm. And that judgment is based upon the solely upon the righteousness of one, Jesus. Correct. Right? And as we pointed out with the with the matter of excommunication, those who sit outside on the curb and grumble and whine that they're not in the wedding feast because they refuse to wear the baptismal garments that are given to them by Christ, the judgment it only stings when you refuse to put the clothes on, so to speak. Which are gifted to you. Which are gifted to you, exactly. You don't have to pay for them. <laughs> You're throwing away a gift because you'd rather sit in the darkness in the gutter with your buddies. Misery loves company and all that. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a, we would say it's irrational, um, but it's only irrational because of faith, right? <laughs> Correct. In contrast Correct. to faith. I mean, apart from faith, uh, that makes complete sense. Correct. Yeah. So to, to re, kind of reiterate this point, it simply concludes the following. If you have done good works you will not be justified by them. Mm -hmm. Or if you have done bad works, you will not be condemned because of them. That in and of itself, as we pointed out, the angel and the devil on your shoulders or Jiminy Crickets, let your conscience be your guide. This is fundamentally the old Adam's theology. Mm -hmm. Is good works. What the old Adam wants more than anything is Santa Claus for God. And therefore God gives good little boys and girls good things. 
And it gives bad little boys and girls bad things. Because how are we supposed to know and measure our progress in this world and in relation to divinity if we don't have any kind of sign or symbol or marker? You need some benchmarks, right? And some analytics. Correct. <laughs> Just like putting your child up against the door jam and then marking with a pencil their, their growth over the years. Christians want the exact same thing. We all want it. Yeah. This is why uh, try and get kids to participate in a martial art without belts or promotions and see how long they last before they start to complain. Yeah, we're, we're goal-oriented, right? Yeah, 100%. In fact, at our academy, talking with my instructor, um, he's finally giving out certificates with the belts because people want to hang that certificate on their wall at home that says, I achieved this goal. <laughs> yeah. And it's merely a symbol of work. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that, okay, now you're a purple belt, so now you're just going to beat up blue and white belts without any problem, but you're going to lose forever to brown and black belts. No, it's simply a benchmark that, hey, you put in the work, here's your here's a marker that says you put in the work. Yeah. And what's ironic then is that a lot of people, half of everybody who joins jujitsu, when they receive their blue belt after two, three, four years, they quit because they've got that thing on their wall now, that symbol of their their progression, the symbol of their work they put in, and they've reached their goal, and now they're done. Right. So, I mean, the way this plays out in the Christian faith is challenging then, right? Because we're not, we're, so. are we goal-oriented? Well, to know Christ. No, I guess that would Correct. be the goal. Uh, and could you say more and more? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, grace upon grace? Sure. Uh, and how does that actually end up working out? Well, if, mm -hmm. if you're going to know Christ more and more, then you're going to know your sin more and more. <laughs> Correct. So, so the the difficulty is is that it doesn't take you from a place of you know into from a place of like doubt and and weakness mm -hmm. into a place of strength right. and, and strong right. faith, but it takes you actually into knowing your sin more and more. Actually, that's right. like it causes you to despair more, right, of right. yourself and and actually yeah. have a lower esteem of oneself. I'm going to push this uh, a little bit further since you've got me thinking about this. I'm going to think out loud as we do. Mm -hmm. But use the, again, use what I know best, which is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And the thing is, most people who are new expect that as you advance 5, 7, 10, 12 years to when you finally receive your black belt, that you become less and less like the white belt. Mm. Because you are advancing, you have more knowledge, you are technically an expert, you are a black belt, you've been through it all, you've seen it all, you know the technique backwards and forwards, you can teach, you can fight, therefore you are not like us. And then the shock is like my brown belt instructor that I assist with the introduction of jujitsu class, he is the humblest person mm -hmm. I know, he's the okay. most selfless person I know, he is the most white belt attitude <laughs> that I know who says to the white belts, you teach me more than I teach you. And he's not saying that with any false sense of pride. It's true. You can see it in his demeanor. And he is the most encouraging. But the key there is he is the humblest. He does not think himself any more or less important. In fact, he thinks himself less important than the new students, which is why he is teaching them and preparing them and saying, here are the things I wish someone would have taught me when I was a white belt. And... Everything is for the other. And I think to use that then as an example, yes, there's that progression. But as Spence says, my brown belt, it's not that I'm, I got here because I'm better at technique than everybody else and I beat everybody else up in the gym. It's just because I am still here. Mm -hmm. And so many others along the way have quit and they're not here. It's really just showing up day after day after day for five, seven, 10, 12 years mm. that will get you that belt. Like I said, it's not, the belt doesn't prove that you're Superman. It just proves that you showed up and put in the time and the work. Whereas in the Christian church, the same analogy of progress, there is again, that assumption that we are becoming less and less old Adam sinners and more and more like Jesus mm. and therefore less and less human or the platonic ideal of to become fully human is to become less dependent on your desires and bodily needs. But that versus, well, I was going to say to wrap it up, to that whole true holiness in the Bible is you are literally humbled and shown that the true purpose, the goal of your life is to serve your neighbor, to sacrifice yourself for your neighbor, to humble yourself and say, 
everyone is better than I am. Everyone is more important than I am. Everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ more than I do. Everyone needs to come to the Lord's table. How do I get them there? Because as Christ has died for me and bore my sin, and now has set me free from my sin, I am now free to bear the sin of my neighbors so that they might enjoy Christ as I've enjoyed Christ. Yeah, and like that dichotomous thinking, another uh, fallacy is it's us versus them, right? Mm -hmm. Or me versus the world or something like that. Right, right. Right, and Jesus contradicts that where he says, um, you know, if you want to be the greatest among you is is actually to serve, right? Exactly. Take the lowest seat or to have faith like a child, right? Where it's just... Which may be the root of why there is not the brotherhood and fellowship in the church that I experience amongst my teammates in the academy because in the church so many christians are competing with other christians to show god i'm i'm doing it i'm on the path yeah and maybe maybe not working too hard at it but at least playing the comparison game to others right as long as i'm i it's like the old analogy when the bear comes out of the woods and the guy bends over to tie his shoes and his friends like you can't outrun a bear he's like, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> as long as I'm not last in line at the last judgment, I'm good. In fact, if I could be kind of towards the middle, maybe a C plus B minus, you know, kind of towards the front, but not too far. I mean, that's, you don't want to be super religious. Yeah, that's your, that's your friend above average, right? In, in, right. In the, at Lake, yeah. whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. I said your friend. It's a joke. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. I got you. All right. I'm with good. you. So otherwise, back to the text. Mm-hmm. With respect to justification, I say, we must be sure that we have grasped on to Christ. Otherwise, if we strive to be justified through the law, we will achieve nothing except making Christ worthless to us. For it is Christ alone who justifies me over against my bad works and without my good works. We've got to get away from all moral judgments because that is actually original sin. Mm. To be like God, knowing good and evil. So these moral judgments that we place on our works, the reason they exclude Christ is because our focus on our works is original sin. To which Jesus died (laughs) for our sin. Mm Mm-hmm. And therefore, to focus on our good or bad works, to commit the original sin again, is to deny that Christ died for them. Well, at least in regards to justification, right? Correct, correct. I mean, to make a moral judgment about how your actions have affected your neighbor. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. That's right. It's right. called your conscience. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where it is to be your guide, is to, to in, in your loving service to your neighbor. Right. Um, but before God, it, it attains you nothing. Right. Correct. And, and right. that's what Luther is being very cautious about running with Paul. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right. Luther will quote Cicero at length and say, point blank, if there is a pagan that I hope is in heaven, it's Cicero. Because he surpasses Plato and Aristotle and all of the other philosophers in his wisdom. I would say the same thing about Marcus Aurelius, mm. the Stoic. That, yeah, in regards to my neighbor, there is no better guide for me than Marcus Aurelius. And his meditations. Mm. Fantastic, Mm -hmm. fantastic. And primarily because he didn't write it for an audience, he was writing it to himself. He was journaling on how to be a good leader to his people. Wow. And Roman historians say Marcus Aurelius' rule was pretty much the high watermark, the golden age of Rome. Because unlike so many of the other emperors who were just in it to indulge their lusts at the expense of the people, Marcus Aurelius actually cared about the people. Is that Gladiator? <laughs> Actually, Marcus Aurelius is in Gladiator. He is uh, Richard Harris's character, mm-hmm. the old man at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the thing, especially with conservative Christians. Maybe we miss that: is that there is wisdom in regard in regards to our neighbor that is actually good for us. It is first article gifts, mm-hmm. and yet in relation to Christ and the third article, it's not. I want. I don't want to say useless or worthless because apologetically, I think it does have a function. But as you've said before, it gets us to the front door, but it can't open the door and get us inside. Well, and I guess the challenge is if we apply a moral judgment uh, upon our even our works to our neighbor, it's mm-hmm. tr- maybe in terms of like attaching some value to them, right? Sure. Um, then they're always going to fall short. I mean, who loves their neighbor, even their own spouse, the way that, that Christ loved the church, right. for example. Uh, well, and what is that judgment based on except comparison? Right, and even if you're going to compare against God's word, then you 
well, if you do compare it against God's word, it's mm-hmm. going to do what Paul said it was going to do, is which accuse everyone of sin. Right. Yes. And to your point, as he says in Romans, it's essentially going to make you stop talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> your mouth will be shut up because you will have no excuse or justification before the throne of God at the end of the day. Right. So you, Because there's always something that you could have done better. So you who keep talking about your works. Correct. Um, <laughs> shut up. I mean, that's, that's the yeah. purpose of the law. Right. Um, and just take every time you want to say the word works, say Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, exactly. and even something that we turn into work like faith, right? Instead of mm-hmm. saying your faith yeah. has saved you, say your Jesus has saved you. Your Jesus has saved you. Mm-hmm. Which again, at higher things so often in the summers at conferences when we preach this way or teach this way, it's confusing sometimes to both children and adults because the subtlety of this, the benign evil of our old Adam self is we will say faith is a gift and then we will take credit for faith. Mm-hmm. Right. And we'll, and we'll say that, that uh, works are good, and that, but we exclude them from, sal- you know, from justification, from right, salvation. Right, right. You're like, well, then you're right. excluding works entirely. But no, right. that's not what we said. Luther's cautious here about that. I don't Correct. remove from good works their praiseworthiness, nor do I recommend bad works. Correct. That's Correct. not what we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. It's a dichotomy. Mm. And if you don't hold it in tension, it will mix together and you will become a Hegel or a Thomas Aquinas, or even an Augustine. Mm, yeah. Or the disciples of James from Jerusalem. Yeah. In Paul's case here, back to the text. If I have this conviction regarding Christ, I am grasping on to the true Christ. That is, I'm not going to look at my bad works or my good works. I'm going to look at Christ. Then I am grasping on to the true Christ. I just had this conversation the other day with a member, and you and I were talking before we went on air. I said, when you're looking at the corpus on the altar, it's impossible to judge your neighbor because all you see is Christ. But as soon as you look to the left or to the right at the altar, you will judge your neighbor who is kneeling next to you at the Lord's table. Hmm. This is the problem we have is when we're looking at Christ, we're thinking about Christ because he's right. It's like when I look at my wife, when I'm looking at my wife, I'm not looking around for other women in the room and, and admiring other women's bodies or thinking, oh, I wonder if I was married to her because I'm looking at my wife. And therefore, my int- my attention, my focus is on Annie. As soon as I turn my way my head away from Annie and I start looking around the room, I start thinking, oh, I wonder how long they've been married. Or, oh, they look like they're not very happy by their body language. Or, oh, she's sexy. I wonder what it's like to be married to her. And, oh, she has all those kids. I want, And I'm not thinking about Annie. Or at the very least, I'm comparing all of the other women right. in the room to my wife mm. for good and bad. <laughs> And therefore, I get bogged down in those moral judgments, which, as I think it was Oscar Wilde said, comparison is the thief of joy. Hmm. Or at least he stole it from somebody else. But comparison is the thief of joy. It should basically be, in our house, it could be on a poster stamped, you know, stapled to the wall. Right. Yeah, because you, you'll compare um, your family to Correct. other families. You'll ca- compare your church right. to other churches. And as you know, too, what is th- what is the the clarion call of future atheism than comparing the pastor's kids to the other kids in church yeah. and then saying, no, you're held to a higher standard because you're the pastor's kids. Hmm. Pastor, Therefore, we, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, pastor, your kids are so well behaved. Uh, right. Is that, and that's because you're a pastor, right? Um, no. <laughs> no, that's because of, you know, nearly two decades of hard work. Exactly. And discipline and, yeah. Right. And, and lots of screaming. <laughs> right. It's like when the farmer brings the fruit to the market. What you don't see, and you say, well, this is too expensive. How can you charge this much for your produce? Because you don't see how hard I work to get this out of the ground with the work I put into it. And if you did, you'd realize that I was charging you too little. You would insist to pay me more. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny how that works out. So if I think that he requires, that is, if I think that Jesus requires me from me the law and good works to attain righteousness, that is the forgiveness of sins, then he is worthless to me. And I cut myself off entirely from him. Mm. So to this point too, when we read righteousness, we almost automatically default to an earthly understanding of righteousness, which is justice, Mm -hmm. right, wrong, good and evil, lawful and unlawful. This is righteousness in regard to God. This is the forgiveness of sins. Yes. Which is imputed to us when God sends a preacher to announce to us for Jesus' sake, for Christ crucified, for the sin of the world, you are forgiven all your sin. That's what it means to be righteous. And in an earthly sense, then, righteousness is virtue. It is being a good neighbor, being lawful, being obedient to the law. That is, you are showing by your behavior whether or not you are a righteous man. 
However, in relation to God, the righteous man is in all appearances unrighteous to the world. Yeah, I saw this in a television program where uh, one woman was trying to um, reconcile with another. Um, there were some horrible things that had happened. And it, it, so she tries to make amends, right? That's what we call it. You know? Do you watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> tries, tries to make amends. And it was interesting because the response of the other woman was, um, I accept your apology, uh, but I cannot forgive you. Right. And, uh, but that's what we're trying to do, right? By, with mm-hmm. our good works is, is to make amends to God for all the things we've done. Um, but we somehow think that then that will convince him to forgive us and to forget Correct. whatever remaining debt there is mm-hmm. after our amends have, you know, somehow atoned for some of those. Right. And that's not how it works. Not according to Psalm 51. Mm. Right. What is, what is an offering that God accepts? Well, it's a, actually a broken and contrite heart. Right. But what about all the bulls and the calves and all the other offerings? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, you can do if offered in faith. However, Jesus, according to Hebrews, is the one time for all time sacrifice. So right. if you want to, you can, but you don't need to. This is why the disciples go to the temple after Jesus ascends. There's no prohibition of going into the temple and worshiping God, so long as you understand the God you're worshiping is the man, Jesus Christ. And it wasn't synergistic. I mean, they went to hear God's Correct. word as, as it yes. was taught. Uh, mm-hmm. And then as Acts is careful to say, well, then they went back to their home uh, for the Lord's right. Supper, right? Which exactly. is not offered exactly. in the temple. <laughs> and I think, again, another key point here, going back to humility is, uh, I've talked about this maybe on this podcast before, but for years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I sat around tables. I sat in church basements and the back of shops and, and the basement of stores and talked about humility. And I prayed for humility, actually. I wanted humility because I saw it in others and I envied them their humility. And I recognized in myself an enormous ego. And obviously that's what happens with addiction is your ego gets set free to run and alcohol and drugs then are incorporated into that. And it kind of expands your territory of your ego. And in the end, you cannibalize yourself, Mm. or at least, you know, in the name of supporting your habit, your, what is intended for your enjoyment becomes your taskmaster, your your owner. You become a slave to it. And I just got frustrated by the fact that I could not find humility, talking about it, reading about it, praying over it. And what I didn't know at the time, because I was naive to it, that that it was given to me later, is I I needed to be humbled. I needed to receive a humbling Mm. because my ego would not allow me to be truly of no importance to myself and others. Yeah, because that'd be like self-annihilation, right? Yeah, right. And who wants to do that? And so for myself and just for myself, going to meetings was a safe form of self-annihilation, hmm. right? Not too much, but not too little. Not quite dead. Like we were talking about. A little dying. Right? Again, a little dying. I want to be in the middle, maybe a little toward the front, but I just don't want to be in last place or first place. First place is total self-annihilation and who wants that? But last place is I'm just... I'm t- I can see self-annihilation from here, but I'm really comfortable just watching it from a distance. Right. And so for me, and biblically speaking, uh, humility is something that is done to us. We are humbled. And you see this in the widow or the, yeah, the widow with the, the pennies at the temple. Mm-hmm. You see this with the woman caught in adultery. You see this uh, with the woman who dries or washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Over and over again, the people that run to Jesus are those who have been humbled right. by their physical uh, ailments, their social ailments, whatever it might be. But they know, they know in point of fact that they are of no importance whatsoever. This is what Mary says in her in the song, mm, right? That I am of no importance. Have Why have you considered me? Low estate. Yeah. Yes. And don't you I think don't this, you see this play out with Luther as well? I mean, but in the yes, opposite yes. way, where I mean, he talks about, and it's certainly in the background here. He talks about all of his monkery, mm. I guess. You yes, call it, absolutely, and all the self-flagellation, all the ways that right. he, he sought to discipline himself, and how right. fruitless it was. Right. Right. You know, you can't humble yourself because when you pursue humility, you then have pride in your pursuit of humility. <laughs> it's so elusive. Yeah. Right. I am so proud that I am so humble. And now I am humbled at my pride. Look, I didn't eat bacon all through Lent. Yeah, good, exactly. good on you. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, yeah, back back to the book. <laughs> These are fearsome statements. See, even Luther understands what he has just said mm-hmm. is fearsome. And threats against the righteousness of the law and self-righteousness. Further, they are also the strongest principles that sustain the article of justification. Therefore, at the end, we come to this conclusion. Either we lose Christ or we lose the righteousness of the law. If you are left with Christ, you are righteous before God. But if you hold on to the law, Christ avails you nothing. Further, you are left with the obligation to keep the entire law and the verdict against you has already been pronounced. Quote, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Mm. Everything we've said about the law, we extend to the traditions of men. The Pope and all his religious followers must renounce all that they have ever trusted. Otherwise, Christ will also avail them nothing. Hmm. That is why we can say without hesitation how pernicious and pestilent is the doctrine of the Pope. He has, in fact, achieved Christ availing nothing. Yeah, and this corresponds well to what we were talking about before the show, thinking about, um, you know, both of us are in rather old congregations, at least by Mm -hmm. American standards, I suppose, you know, 150, 160 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But how how much these traditions of men end up being something that you trust in. So, you know, in my case, it's like, well, uh, confirmation is always age 13, 14, uh, and it's always on Palm Sunday because that's the way we've always Mm -hmm. done it. And the, the, the challenge with that isn't that, you know, that that couldn't be, a, oh, I don't know, just a, a, a earthly tradition that, that just kind of keeps things in order. But it's be, actually yeah. become um, a religious obligation, right? Correct. It's become something that we trust in. Like, if we do this <laughs> thing, which incidentally, even confirmation being a human tradition, if we do that thing, it's going to, you know, there's God's, well, we actually put words in God's mouth. We say, here's the promise, mm-hmm. right? It's going to keep the kids right, in the church right. or something. Yeah. We will be blessed. Uh, where he's made no such promise. And, and so it's a law, it's even a law unto itself. It's not even It's not even right. God's law. Right. And th- as we noted earlier in this podcast, and we've talked about, this is the benign nature of evil, mm. is that it, it happens moment after moment, decision after decision. It doesn't happen all at one time, but rather it's moment to moment that appear benign, the decisions appear benign, and yet the end result is this malignant growth yeah over and around god's word and and so then i'm thinking of the last church i served in uh, at some point they decided to do some renovation and cleaning and you know it was a similar age church 100 some 150 mm-hmm. years or so and they they had by either neglect or just maybe it was an intentional decision because of the challenge of it they had never cleaned the ceiling <laughs> yeah, so when they clean right. the ceiling what do they find underneath but this beautiful scroll work um, and colors and it, it, things that had been obscured i mean they're in the city so there's a lot of smog mm-hmm. and pollution so mm-hmm. just grit and grime had had masked it and it just no built kidding. up over time and huh. and underneath it all was actually you know an, something quite beautiful um but because of the way these things build up over time you just forget about it and you don't even think right and and then you know, there's not even a question. Hey, should we clean that ceiling? It, right. Nobody asked the question anymore, and and it was mm. lost. It reminds me. We've been reading through um, uh, Kings and Chronicles with the kids, and uh, you know, we have Hezekiah restoring the worship in the temple, and how outrageous mm. it was. Right? I mean, all these bulls right. and, and uh, sheep and everything being sacrificed, and the noise, and the and the you know, even celebrating the Passover mm. on the wrong day um, because they yes. had forgotten about it. And mm-hmm. but but that's that's the joy of recovering um, what we'd say recovering the gospel, recovering the forgiveness of yes, sins yes. when it when it's discovered yes. again by us, as it was for Luther. Then that's all he right. talks about, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's Luther's point in the Beatitudes commentary. I think is that in faith in Christ, all creation proclaims Christ. Mm, yeah. Like the church ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. But it was lost. It was hidden. But it was lost. Exactly. You know. 
through neglect or through uh, even intentional actions of like, oh, it's just mm-hmm. too expensive, you know, to get a get a lift and get up there and clean the ceiling. Right. So we're just not yeah. going to do it. And then you forget. Back to the book. In Jeremiah 23, God complains about the prophets because they prophesy lies and dream dreams arising from their own hearts, leading people to forget his name. The false prophets departed from the correct interpretation of the law and from the true doctrine regarding Abraham's seed in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Instead, they preached their own dreams so that people would forget their God. In the same way, the papists drive away the entire world from Christ. They have obscured and disfigured the doctrine of Christ to the extent they have canceled out his power, teaching and expounding only the doctrine of works. Those who wholeheartedly take this entire issue into account will have no other response but to fear and tremble. Yeah, and I I know there's been... Mm probably lengthy criticism of what do they call it in 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 the evangelical world vision casting right correct yeah um you know i have a vision for this congregation we we would say mission right um but i don't know what your mission yeah. statement is if you have got such a thing um but it's probably something kind of uh well at least in the world's eyes a little boring like we're going to preach the gospel minister the sacraments and let christ do the work <laughs> Actually, that's almost exactly what our mission statement is. <laughs> right, and it, it's like, well, that's not all that visionary. I mean, where's your where's your grand plans? Where's your right. you know your I don't know large church or uh, flourishing right. ministries or uh, outreach to to the needy or whatever it is. Um, right, and uh, what Luther's getting at, I think, is that um, these dreams have a way of obscuring. Uh, the purpose, like we said, and maybe they build up over time. Maybe at the beginning, it's just a little bit of a twist, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, a twist towards works. So, you know, uh, like this ministry of, of our congregation is an essential part of who we are. Right. And key point here too, I think Luther draws out, and we've been basically pointing at this throughout the hour, the false prophets departed from the correct interpretation of the law and from the true doctrine regarding Abraham's seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not that they did not interpret the law or that there was a law or they said, no, listen to us. Oh. It is a correct interpretation of the law, which again, in Luther's day, he's accused of being lawless, just as Paul. Mm-hmm. You and I mm-hmm. have been accused of being lawless by those who we would argue depart from a correct interpretation of the law. Yeah, they, the, the law is um, given a different realm and domain, right? Uh, yes. Different force and impact that it that it's right. that it's the guide for the Christian life, right? Right. Which, you know, maybe in a sense it could be rightly understood, but it's usually meant to say, as Luther has been getting at, Christ plus your works. Correct. You know, and maybe not even intentionally, right. but but just through mm-hmm. what what would he call it? Sophistry. You know, just um, yeah. fancy wordplay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and as I'm going to preach this Sunday coming up in, in the sermon, I'm preaching on the Romans text, do not be defeated by evil, but but defeat evil with good. It's very easy to preach that entirely in a earthly left-hand kingdom sense. Good and evil is philosophical categories mm-hmm. there as abstractions versus there's only one who is good, God, that is Jesus. So therefore, we have to be careful when we talk about defeating evil with good that we don't abstract it. Yeah especially when it's concrete and real and in our face, that is evil. And yet, likewise, then we can't deny the concrete reality of evil or that the law actually has something to say about that. Yeah. As it has something to say about what is good. Well, but the law, theologically speaking, first table of the commands points us to the one who is good, God, and what he does for us in Jesus Christ. And then the second table of the law points us to what is good for our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And... The second table of the law is actually open to everybody. We would call that a civil use of the law. Ah, so maybe only the second table should be on the courthouse. <laughs> there we go. But yeah, you will have no other gods before my face. That is, we are to fear, love, and trust God above all things. Mm-hmm. This is very specific to, for us as Christians. This is very specific to Jesus. And this is why you and I both teach you must read the law in two ways, how it is 
prescriptive to the old Adam and descriptive to the new man in Christ about Jesus's works, mm -hmm. fulfilling the law. Yeah. If you teach it in one way, you will jump into one or the other ditch. You will either become, as you said, a sophist, or you will become an antinomian. Yeah. Either the law becomes really everything mm -hmm. or it becomes nothing. He, it has no purpose. But here's the twist. Here's the twist. Both ditches are autonomy because both groups are a law unto themselves. Mm, that's right. And that in and of itself is the incorrect interpretation of the law. Right. That the purpose of the law is for you to take it and decide for yourself or your group or your organization the best way to employ this in your activities, which as you pointed out, Christ plus our work. So what we do then is under the cover of good, we commit the most heinous evil. But we're justified. Right, because it's good. Hmm. It's good for me and it's good for you and it's good for our church and it's good for our family and it's good for the society. And if it's good, how can you say that it's bad? Hmm. Don't you love the law of God? Hmm. Well, yes, I do. But what you're saying is not the law of God. What you're saying is what the false prophet said, which is, I have dreamed a dream. Mm, yeah. I have a vision. And it is that this church become X or that this people become Y or that you become Z. Right. However, that spins itself out, as you said, we'll call it missional or we'll call it vision casting or we'll call it revivalism or we'll call it a holiness movement or whatever name we attach to it. It's just a pious excuse for works. Yeah. Preaching peace, peace where there is no peace or preaching forgiveness Correct. where there is no forgiveness, we'd say. Correct. Or, or Christ right. where there is no Christ. <laughs> right. And there's a simple litmus test, right? <laughs> is it Christ for you for the forgiveness of sins apart from the works of the law? Yeah. Period. Full stop. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Paul is careful about that in Galatians uh, to keep, what do you want mm -hmm. to say? Keep the law in its place. Uh, Correct. And so that I think one of the profound arguments is saying, well, when was the law given? And he says, well, 400-ish years after the promise. Yeah. Right. Well, why was it given then? Well, because of trespasses. Yes. So what's the law's purpose? To reveal sin, right? I mean, this, mm -hmm. this is his point. Um, right. And it, there would, there's no need to preach the law that mm. way apart from sinners, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So that's its, that's its scope, if you like, and and its uh, aim or objective, and why it was preached mm -hmm. by by Moses. Yeah. Right. Which is why, to this day, again going back to the, the pious lie, sugar coated lies of the pious, we will read Galatians, we will preach Galatians, we will applaud Paul, and yet, in our actions, we would deny everything he writes. Mm. We will, especially chapter six, we will turn the works of the flesh into the fruits of the spirit. Yeah. And uh, I remember how this Quickly. played out in my own catechesis. I try to avoid it. And we've talked about this, oh, probably not on this show, but in previous show, um, about how if you follow the order of the catechism as it's written in your catechesis, mm -hmm. at least in my own experience, we spent like half a year on the Ten Commandments. Correct. And we barely even got, we never got to the Christian questions and their answers. We barely ever mm -hmm. got through anything more than maybe the creed and the third article right. we had to run through. Right. We might have, just because we were going to receive the sacrament when we talked through it, um, baptism was kind of, you know, it, it might get a few weeks. But the commandments, that's the thing. That's the place. And, yes. and I think that betrays yeah, our own uh, mistaken thinking about the the purpose of the law, you know. No, hundred percent. Or Luther, it leads you 100%. right into the confession of faith. It leads you right into baptism. It leads you right. You know, why? If you teach the Ten Commandments, both as it is applied to the new man and the old man at the same time, mm -hmm. yeah. But you can probably, I, I think, it's easy to to miss that, um, even in his mm -hmm. own explanation to the commandments, uh, unless oh, unless you've yeah. already been through, like, say, uh, what is baptism. You know, especially apart from the large catechism. Oh, that's true too. Yeah. If you don't bring the large catechism to bear on that, then a hundred percent, again, your old Adam will spin that out yep. for his benefit. We should, you should, you should, you should. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And not see Christ anywhere in the 10 commandments. Yeah. So to wrap it up then, to reiterate, in the same way, the papists drive away the entire world from Christ. They have obscured and disfigured the doctrine of Christ to the extent they have canceled out his power teaching and expounding only the doctrine of works, only, in the name of Jesus, but only. Mm. Those who wholeheartedly take this entire issue into account will have no other response but to fear and tremble because they have been misled. I know. Read, yeah. read his letters of spiritual counsel to some of his colleagues. 
And this is exactly what he is getting after with them. This is what he is exhorting them toward is, I understand where you're at. You've become too rigid or you've used the the doctrine of justification by faith alone as an excuse to return to the flesh. But think about where you were under the papacy and think about where you are now and think about who it is that got you there. Is it is it Luther? No. It's Jesus Christ himself through the power of his gospel and his spirit. Yeah. And that was one of the things that despaired Luther probably most of anything towards the end of his life, right? Is watching those... Mm-hmm whom, um, you know, Christ had had hold upon, you know, through this through right. preaching of the evangelical, you know, message, the gospel. Right. Uh, and then to see them depart it in the way that Paul experienced yes. too, in, you know, with the church in Galatia and how terrifying that was. Right. Mm-hmm. And anecdotally, going back to the analogy I used from jujitsu, the, bra- the black belt is the one who's still standing at the end of the day. He's the one who put it, who just kept showing up. Likewise, then as a pastor, the fear and trembling for myself anyways is especially 11 years into this congregation, the same thing, watching people come and then watching people just evaporate. Yeah. And following up with them and finding out, learning that it's just hard-heartedness or the cares and worries of life that have dragged them away. Or they'll say things like, well, pastor, you know, I still believe in God. I still believe in Jesus and everything that I learned at church. It's just Sundays is my only day off. And I like to whatever it is, it works. Yeah. It's, it's, I like to basically revel in my works, whether it's my, you know, Netflix and chill or go golfing or whatever it might be, but they do not see how imminently important the sacrament is for them. Mm, right. Or to be constantly reminded of their great sin and therefore their need for a great savior. Yeah. or their baptismal vocation, or the temptations of the flesh that they're caught up in, or that they've excommunicated themselves, as we've been saying. Yeah, yeah. And the fear and trembling then is, as we talked about before the show, when we see old pastors who are retired, and yet will their whole life be faithful confessors of the Lutheran Reformation teaching on, on justification of the gospel, all of a sudden say, the Bible has nothing to say on justification. I've been wrong this whole time. And again, for me... I shouldn't say again because we were talking about it off the air, so our listeners don't know. But for me, that is humbling because it shows me as certain as I may be of myself right now, it is simply by the grace of God that I am who I am. Yeah. And for Luther, the papacy being, you know, these are godly men that over generations, right? Correct, yeah. You know, um, Again, departed. it's benign. It started off as something very benign, seemingly. Right. And that's one of the and, emphases of the Lutheran Reformation is to say, look, look at your own fathers. Look at our own you know, church fathers here. I mean, whether it's Gregory right. or Leo or whoever. Yeah. Um, or even, I mean, even Thomas, I even quote Thomas. Say, look at how you've, even, you've departed from them. You, you, yeah. And you don't even, you just don't even see it. And that should be, like he says, that should cause us to fear and tremble when, mm-hmm. um, like, you, like you mentioned just a minute ago, go back and read the large catechism and like, how did we not ever hear this before? Whatever, mm-hmm. whether it's an exposition on the on a commandment or, yeah. you know, especially there, it's like I we had no idea, and that's a that's a cause to repent. And it's interesting too because I mean that is the story I mentioned Chronicles before, but if you read it, you know that mm-hmm. that cyclical uh, nature of of not only our life but of of our institutions of the church or the, mm-hmm. our countries or whatever, you know, right. moving from faith to unbelief. And then to repentance and back to faith, um, and that right. God is constantly working that um, in us, even daily. Luther would say, right, with the, with our yeah. baptism, daily dying and rising. Hmm. And so, to for myself, anyways, to sum up what we're saying is, pastors, you need to preach Christ and the gifts more and more and more without ceasing. And if the congregation is uninformed, if they've not read the large catechism if they are straying back into works and self-righteousness, at least for myself as the pastor, I have to take 100% accountability and say, it's be- this is my failure mm-hmm. as your pastor to not preach and catechize you in such a way that you don't, one, receive the full brunt of the law, which condemns your sin, and therefore the full sweetness of the gospel, which absolves you of your guilt. Mm-hmm. And all for Christ's sake. Exactly. All for Christ's sake. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Christ's sake. Exactly. So that brings us to the end of this epic 
series on Luther's Galatians lectures. If you want to read this for yourself, you can go to Geraldo Camacho's Martin Luther's Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians, published by 1517. Link in the show notes. We, link in the show notes. And we began today on page 417. Mm-hmm. Galatians 5, verse 4, right? There we go, yes. No. So come back next week for a brand new episode when we will be looking at hymnody. Yeah, that's the new thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll dive into that. I have an old book I'm going to pull out, which actually is a commentary on a lot of these hymns and their authors. So we'll get into that. And we'll look as at Lutheran as it gets hymnody. Mm-hmm. Good. As always, thank you so much for all of your support for this show. If you would like us to read a Lutheran theologian on the show, please send us an email. Uh, Leave us a five-star review on iTunes if you think we deserve it. And as always, we love you, we appreciate you, and we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Peace. Peace.